academic scholarship is about converting bullshit into air miles. That's it there. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome from Alpha from Alpha to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 31st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 18th of May 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. After a brief holiday to bask in the cold and brutal wet weather of Ireland and England, the show is back on the road, fueled up and raring to go. This week's show is sponsored by the very generous Matthew T., who, along with his generous donation, also wrote me some very nice words indeed. Thanks a million, Matthew. If you too would like to have your name mentioned and slavishly praised, all you need to do is click on the donate button on the podcast website. And if the show is insufficient to state your needs and desires, you can also follow me on Twitter or over on Facebook. This week's guest is Professor Alan Freeman. Alan is a retired but research active cultural economist. He formerly worked for the Mayor of London's Economic Analysis Unit, where he was responsible for the living wage, innovation and the cultural and creative industries. He is co-editor with Radhika Desai of a new book series entitled The Future of World Capitalism, published by Pluto Books. He is one of a small club of economists who predicted the crash of 2008. And in 2008, he also predicted that the economic crisis would not leave the industrialised countries until these countries undertook public investment on the scale associated with US government spending during World War II, or about 55% of GDP. He is a visiting professor at London Metropolitan University where he works on the city's cultural and creative evidence project. Alan currently resides with his wife in Winnipeg, Canada. The show is loosely based around a paper of his just published in the Journal of Australian Political Economy called The Profit Rate in the Presence of Financial Markets, a Necessary Correction. We joined the conversation as Alan tells us why he believes the rate of profit tends to fall over time. It is, of course, quite a contested subject, so what I'm giving you is my view. I think that my view is also close to the view of Karl Marx. But you don't actually have to be particularly clued up about Marx to understand the argument. So I'm just going to give it in quite general terms without any technicalities. If you think of what an economy does, it makes a certain amount of uh, goods every year and it sells them. And it does various things with them. Well, some of it gets eaten by the workers, that's the wages. Some of it gets eaten by the capitalists. They buy various goods, some of them more expensive than the ones the workers can afford them. Top hats and yachts and things like that, or whatever you like to imagine. But then there's some money left over, and that that's left over is invested. That's what leads to capital being accumulated. So every year, a certain proportion of what is produced by the economy is ploughed back in in the form of buying new goods. Some of it just replaces the goods that are used up. But generally speaking, there's always that bit left over, which has to be what Marx called accumulated. Now then, there are various views about what then happens to it. 
One view is that that capital eventually gets wiped out through technical progress, the goods get cheaper. We, uh, Andrew Kleiman and myself, have challenged that view and we think the evidence shows that that money is not wiped out, that it actually grows slowly over time. So if the capital of the economy is growing over time, but the output of that economy is not growing faster, which would generally be the case because the growth of output is actually quite slow, then what you look at is the amount of profit that the capitalists get. You divide that by their capital and that gives you the rate of profit or what in business terms would be called their rate of return. It's just to give a familiar example, you're thinking of buying some shares. Well, one of the things you look at is what is the rate of return? If you buy a hundred pound share, how much will you get back per year? Say you get five pounds a year, then your rate of return is five over a hundred because that's what you paid for the share, which is five percent. We're just saying for the whole of the economy, like for Great Britain PLC or the USA PLC, that rate of return, which is called the rate of profit, is what tends to fall over time. Then there are various forces that may restore it. There are circumstances under which it goes up. And there's a hell of a lot of discussion to be had about what those circumstances are. My basic argument is unless something is done, it will just rise over time. And I think that's pretty well what Marx thought as well. And what is the effect in the developed economies of the West being on the falling rate of profit over the post-war period? Well, there are two economies that I have looked at, which are the USA and Britain. There is some other work done by a guy called Robert Brenner, who's done some very comprehensive work on rates of profit in many parts of the world. And I'm hoping gradually to get some people interested in repeating the work for other countries. So I'm just going to talk about the US and the UK. Well, up until the calculation that I did, here's the way it seemed to look. In the USA, the rate of profit shot up during the war. And it reached a very high point around about 1944. Then you had what are called the golden years, the years of very rapid U.S. growth, high consumption levels, very low unemployment, high productivity growth, the post-war boom. That went on till about 1968 and then the first real, 65 was then the first real signs of trouble emerged, leading to really deep signs of trouble in, in, in 1974 and the first major post-war recession. Now, the rate of profit was actually falling over that whole period, but it started very high. So that by the time you get to 1974, I haven't actually had a look at my figures to come back with this. So, you know, you can, you can refer to the paper, but it was about half what it was at the start of that fall. Then you get a break. And by the way, the UK profit rate does exactly the same. So they go down until you hit this big crisis, 1974. And a lot of what the discussion is about is what happens after that break. In the UK, up until now, using the measures that most people have been applying to this, it seems to start rising. And it, it rises, it almost completely recovers, in fact, by, by 2010. In the US, it's much more nuanced. It goes up, it goes down. There's a big discussion about how much it's gone down, how much it's gone up. Andrew Kleiman and I would say even on the traditional measure, if certain corrections are made, it does have a downward trend over time. But there's points when it's rising and there are arguments to be made that in fact it recovered 
around about, let's say, by 1990. This is very strongly argued by two very well-known French Marxists, uh, Duménil and Lévy. So the answer would be, in Britain, it's a V. It goes down and then up. And in the USA, it goes down and then it bounces around and nobody can agree on what it does. That's the standard view. Then you come to my view, which makes the correction. And if I'm right, in actual fact, it just continued going down in both countries and still is. What is the standard neoliberal take on this supposed correction in the rate of profit? Well, it's very interesting because I've been looking for analogies of the Marxist measure in the non-Marxist literature. And in fact, I've been getting a few correspondences from, from people in most uh, surprising positions who are saying that they, they think that there is a point here that the accumulation of capital does play a role in the way that capitalism behaves. It's not, as it were, the sort of thing you'd learn in a 101 course, and it's not upfront in the neoliberal literature, but it's, it's there. They have an awareness that as capital accumulates, it does something to the economy. The problem is that they don't really have a way of capturing that in numbers, because you see, what I like about Marx is, is, is he has a concept of value. Now, his concept of value is something that allows you to filter out the effect of price changes and filter it out in a way which I think is much better than the neoliberal way, which is just to look at the physical so-called use, uh, utility of, of the objects. That doesn't really tell you what's going on. It's only when you get it in value terms that you start to get a picture of what's really going on. The problem with the neoliberals you can actually do it in straight price terms uh, because it's a ratio, but they tend to drift off into all sorts of very fancy measures of capital, which erase the effects so that it doesn't show up in a lot of their stuff. There's a branch called growth theory where it figures. It's there, but it's not major. In the economic literature, we, we commonly hear about a, a fall in demand, but not so much about the fall in profits. Why is there such an emphasis on demand? And conversely, why do you, you place such an emphasis on profits? I think they're both important. The reason I focus on profits is, is actually that it's a source of demand. Because if you think of our basic model, here's the economy. A certain amount of money is going to pay wages, a certain amount is going for the consumption of the capitalists, and a certain amount is being invested. Those are all sources of demand. Quite often when let's say, in, in, in a, what I would call a bastard Keynesian framework, which is not what Keynes was on about. One always has to distinguish the real Keynes from the Keynes that gets taught in the textbooks, just as you have to distinguish the real Marx from the Marx that gets taught in the textbooks. So if you take the Keynes that's taught in the textbooks, it just focuses on consumption demand. It doesn't really say much about investment demand. So I'm saying that that particular source of demand is also a great source of problems. The two are completely connected through what Keynes himself called the multiplier. If demand for investment goods goes down, that means that the factories which are making those goods, the people who are producing, I don't know, in the old days it would be sort of lathes and, and, and sawmills and things like that. Nowadays it's probably computers and offices and desks. Those guys will not be selling their products because the demand for investment goods is falling. If those guys don't sell their products, they lay off workers. That means those workers are not being paid. 
that means they are no longer able to furnish the demand for consumption goods. And you get into a downward spiral, which is classically what happens in a slump or a depression. And if you get an austerity-minded government, in other words, if you get madness added into the, into the mix, it just carries on going down forever. So I wouldn't say it's like demand versus the profit rate. I would say the profit rate is an indicator that gives you a clue as to what is happening with a very important source of demand, which is the demand for investment rates. Why do you think that the UK's profit hasn't behaved as Marx would predict it since the mid-70s? Why has it rebounded so well? The answer is that it hasn't. The answer is that up until now, people only measured the rate of profit by looking at the rate of return on what are called fixed assets. Fixed assets are things you can basically put your hands on or see. Factories, machinery, computers, offices, that kind of thing. But what happens in a slump and what happens in the kind of crisis that actually started way back in 1974 is a part of that money that was usually up until that time going on machinery wasn't invested in in the proper sense of the word at all. It wasn't used to purchase new means of production. It was instead invested in the sense of putting in a bank, which isn't investment at all. Actually, it's just like putting it in a bedsock, but except the bank gives you a bit of interest. So people started to acquire financial assets, which are claims on income that's generated elsewhere. I argued that that actually was a use of capital. It's a way that they're choosing to use that part of their income that, that is not consumed by anybody that was beginning to compete with productive investment. So since it's beginning to compete with it, you actually have to include it in that aggregate rate of return. So I just took a very modest indicator of those financial assets, those medium or long term, no short run assets. I added those in to the denominator in the rate of profit. I included them in the capital that is seeking a return. And you then find the rate of profit just falls. It never rises again. In other words, I think there's a measurement error. I don't think the rate of profit did actually recover. I think people believed it was recovering because they failed to take into account the growth of basically credit money, money that gets a return through some bank or other. So I'm saying it just carried on down. So can you give us an example of some of these financial assets that corporations were resting their money in on the long term? 
Well, it's very much uh, what was in the news when the financial crisis broke out, these derivatives that people were going on about, so-called ninja mortgages. Essentially, everywhere there's a stream of income, what the financial whiz kids do is they try and create a piece of paper which gives you an entitlement to that stream of income. So somebody's got a mortgage, and um, that's a bit of a problem for the investors because it's all going to the mortgage company. So the financier will go to the mortgage company and say, look, I can take this debt off you. What you've got to do is do what they call slicing and dicing it, make it up into asset, what they call mortgage-backed securities. You may have heard of those. Um, then those have pieces of paper, each of which can be sold on the market. So there is then a market in those derivative or secondary financial instruments. And that's what has really exploded. The streams of income that are dealt with in that way are any source of income. They can be returns from a company. They could be a bond. They could be a consumer assets such as a mortgage. That's very, that's very popular. It could be government debt. Anything that yields a stream of income gets converted into a security. That security then gets derivative upon derivative heaped upon it, and the whole lot gets thrown into the international financial markets and traded like nobody's business until along comes a crisis and it all comes crashing down. So these assets previously would have been held maybe by people, individuals, and not being marketable, and all of a sudden we had corporations competing to try and take some of the profit that might accrue from all these small investments around the place. I think you've got it. That's, that's exactly it. There's no need for me to add anything to it. Uh, these financial assets, what, what has the growth been like in them over the last few decades? Again, I'm a bit um, lax in not having my paper in front of me, so I'm going to resort to the traditional word phenomenal. <laughs> it, it, it's the most important qualitative fact is that the growth in the acquisition of these assets, so the rate at which people are acquiring these new assets, is every year greater. And I think it was around about 1980, 1985, people were actually buying more financial assets than they were fixed assets. And they're now buying, well, with the crash, that stopped. But up until the crash, the ratio of acquisition of financial assets to fixed assets was growing. So the majority of assets that were being acquired were actually financial assets, were actually assets that were not engaged in production at all. And the growth in these assets, is this linked to the lack of good, profitable investment opportunities for these capitalists? Well, the, what connects them all up, and this is something which I've had a few discussions with Marxists about, and there is great confusion over it, because they think I'm talking about something the banks have done. I'm not really talking, and the banks were the instrument of this financialization. But what's really going on is people are accumulating money instead of productive assets. And this was going on way back in Marxist time. You didn't have to have financial markets for that to happen. What would happen in a, a slowdown or a depression is that the money that would have been spent on financial assets, people just hold on to it. Now, they can hold, if you want to hold money, you can hold it in a variety of different forms. You can stick it in a bag sock, you can buy a fine art, you can buy gold, you can buy uh, something that attracts a rent like land or houses. There are all sorts of ways you can get your idle money in some sense working a little bit for you. But none of those actually create new production. That would have been pretty well invisible up until the financialization set in. Once financialization sets in, these things start to get traded. 
So you begin to see them in the financial markets. You begin to get measures of them. The British accountants start to track them uh, back to about 1986. They begin to look at these much more carefully. The US, which is much more scrupulous, has been tracking them for considerably longer. And it begins to become possible to get uh, to ask questions like, what's the total value of these assets that are owned in a given country? So I think there's probably an answer to your question that there was always that tendency for people to hold money instead of productive assets. This always became more marked in a, in a, in a crisis or a depression, and it sometimes went on for a very long time, which is what happened in the 1930s. What we're now seeing is with the growth of financial markets, first of all, you can see what's going on, and secondly, it's probably acting as more of a drag on productive investment than when people were just holding that money in, in their bed socks. And these assets, how strongly attached are they to the real economy? Again, very controversial. And you asked earlier about neoliberal economics. There are two uh, what I call central myths of neoliberal economics. One is that I didn't mention the notion that the economy is in equilibrium. And if you use equilibrium methods, which most neoliberals do, you, you don't really show up anything that relates to capital at all. So part of the answer to that earlier question should have been, oh, by the way, the ones who use equilibrium, which is most of them, don't inquire about capital because for them it just gets wiped out in the transition from one mythical equilibrium to another. But uh, the statisticians are aware that it's there. And the second problem then with the neoliberal view is that they believe that financial activity is productive of wealth. So they think that if you put your money in a bank and the bank is uh, able to sell that to somebody else and that other person is able to get money out of it, everywhere that transaction is involved, it's the same as if a productive asset was being exchanged. So they actually believe that that's making money. Again, if you put things in value terms, it becomes much clearer that that's not what's going on, that that money is actually um, derived income. It's, a, it's, a, it's subtracted from the volume of profit that's created by the productive industries. And so uh, it, isn't, it, isn't, it isn't creating new value at all. And this is probably one of the areas where the strongest difference between Marx and the neoliberal view would appear. But I wouldn't say it's only Marx who holds the view that finance is unproductive. It's, it's kind of instinctively understood by a lot of people. And so is there some kind of limit on the number of these assets that the banks can create? That's a very interesting question. One of the disputes, of course, that's going on now amongst people who realise that the crash is a little bit more than a, a little bit more than a blip, and they, these include some very serious people in the IMF and some economists who are starting to criticise austerity policies, are even accepting that austerity policies are contributing to the crisis. Now, now these guys actually uh, hold to the view, or have hold to the view for a long time, that debt is bad. So. There will be a tendency, even amongst neoliberals, to criticise the mountain and the growth of debt. But of course, they only criticise it when it's helped by the government. So for them, the limit is set by how much debt the government can have. And there was a very famous paper by two uh, very standard austerity mongers called Rogoff and Reinhardt. And they came up with this miraculous number that if you're in debt by more than 90%, you're going to go into negative growth. 
It's no surprise that fiscal conservatives all use Rogoff and Reinhardt to make the case for drastic budget cuts. I'd always heard if it gets to 90%, that's a tipping point, and that's when things That's when economic growth starts to slow. Right. Uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt showed that. If you look at Rogoff and Reinhardt, what they say, you have to, con right. you have to consider gross debt, we're over 100%. Economists who have studied sovereign debt tell us that letting total debt rise above 90% of GDP creates a, ja a drag on economic growth and intensifies the risk of a debt-fueled economic crisis. Yes, a debt-fueled economic crisis. That would plunge us into another Great Depression. This, unfortunately, was then scrutinized by a team of researchers who got an undergraduate to study the works, and he found a mistake which is every undergraduate's dream, of course, which says actually it's not true. This 90% figure is not true. In fact, at the 90% threshold level, you get a quite healthy growth rate by modern standards of 2.2%. So beware of absolute limits. That's what tends to happen. I think, and, and that's just government debt. I don't think there's any absolute limit. I think that the limit that society sets is because of the social and political effects of having six years without any real growth because people are unemployed, the poverty is increasing, it's harder for the capitalists to uh, to increase their fortunes and also these people are now getting competed the hell out of existence by economies that don't go the neoliberal way. So all the time this is going on, China is growing. India, which makes a big fuss about being free market, but is much less free market than people think, that's growing very fast. And the BRICS are beginning to rise as a world power. So it's not that there's any absolute numerical limit. There's no, I don't think there's any mechanical system that says, ah, we have reached the red limit. Now the system will blow up like some... 20s film. That doesn't happen. But what happens is that you get a social and political crisis, which grows and grows and grows, and that breaks out in explosions. It breaks out in things like the Greek meltdown, what happened in Cyprus. Uh, God, I could tell you stories about what's happening in the US economy. Some of them are absolutely scary. The, the system just begins to be less and less capable of, of functioning as a society. And that's what you're seeing now. In your paper, you showed how the profits of the financial sector have grown over the last number of decades from a long-term average, I think, of about 10% in the 60s to 80% by the time of the crash. That's a truly unbelievable profit rate. How do we understand what the capital investment of a bank was in those scenarios where they can get 80% of a return? Well, that 80% return is actually wrong. And I used that figure because I wanted to show that the method that was generally used in the economy was wrong. The bankers themselves would not use that 80% because they absolutely do include financial assets in their capital. Bank capital, for the most part, consists of financial assets. So that 80% I used to show that the method that we are using for the non-banking sector is wrong and the proof that it's wrong is it doesn't work for the banking sector. So I don't think any of the banks would claim 
that we've got 80% return on capital. Not unless, I mean, Bernie Madoff may have pretended something like that, but it, it, it wouldn't be accepted in the banking sector. Their profits have been, at times, very high, and that has been, particularly in times of bubbles, a source of great damage to the economy, because once people think, hell, all the money's being laid by the banks, or by these uh, mortgage-backed securities or whatever, capital sloshes into that new source of investment and it bubbles up and the assets get overvalued and then you get a crash. So I wouldn't say that the long-run profits of the banking sector are spectacularly high or even diversionary as some Marxists say. Once you include in the capital what they themselves do include, which is their financial assets. So I'd like to give an example here just to see if we can understand exactly how we calculate this rate of profit. So yeah. let, let's say I'm Steve Jobs' firm, Apple, and I have, say, for example, a hoard of cash of about 50 billion in the bank. And I have another 50 billion maybe invested in uh, buildings and factories and wages every year. Yeah. So I have 100 billion in total there. And say this year they earn 10 billion in profit. Now, the the old rate of calculating the profit would say to be 10 billion over 50 billion, that'd be 20%. That's right. And what you'd say is that the new rate would be 10 billion over 100 billion or 10%. Is that it? That's exactly right. There are these very large cash surpluses knocking around, which the bankers are starting to, central bankers are starting to get worried about. But even when they have cash surpluses, it's a very curious thing. Companies still borrow because the effect of financialization is the companies themselves start to become gamblers in the financial markets. So they have assets, they gamble with those assets, and they borrow assets, and they sort of convert themselves. Enron's a classic case. It's, it basically was a shell company as regards its, its, its mineral activities. It was just playing with money. They're just becoming quasi-banks. So we see this with a lot of the old productive corporations in America like GE that have essentially become financial players. Absolutely. I used to work for The Economist for a glorious three years and I did a lot to do with their accounts. And that's where I first realized what was going on. It was way back in the 90s and you could see it happening. They, uh, if you run a magazine or a journal business, it's very peculiar because you run it on what's called accruals, which means people pay you in advance and then you promise to deliver a year's worth of uh, nonsense. So you have this money sitting in the treasury, as it's called. Now, back in the 90s, what they would do, or the 80s, is the treasury would just hold it, I don't know, in this sort of the business equivalent, the post office savings account, right? And there was one guy, and they just kept it. And uh, when they needed it to produce this nonsense, then they, they, they put it into activity. And that was the prudent method of procedure. You have, enough, you have to keep enough capital to cover the promises that you've made for the future, right? Then some whiz kid came along and said, well, look, you've got all this idle money. You could make money with it. And they gradually started to invest it. First of all, they just started to invest it in the overnight market. At close play, they put the money out and they get maybe, you know, a quarter of a hundredth of a percent return on it. They would come back, they had a bit more. But as time went on, they started to bring people in to help them get the best return on their capital. And the Treasury Department began to grow instead of just one class of three, four, five, I don't know how many there were by the time I left. And so what happened was that the Treasury began to become a much larger part 
of the institution's activity than just a clerk in the back room. Now, if you imagine industrial companies who are doing that, who don't have such a thriving business as The Economist, so sales are slack, but you've got all this money. Well, let's build up the treasury and cut down the factory. And you're making the first move to being a financialized production company. Uh, there's a lot of literature about that. I'm not one of the people who specialize in it. But there's a pretty broad consensus that that has, in both the US and the UK, grown uh, very significantly, let's say from about 2000 onwards. But I think it's actually gone back much further than that. Why did people not include monetary assets as capital traditionally in the profit equation? Well, I think the interesting thing is that, funnily enough, the people whose business was to do business did that. As I explained, the banks would never have calculated their rate of return in the way that the Marxists were doing. The main other guy who used to look at the rate of profit very seriously is a guy called Kaletsky. And he had a theory that was quite similar to Marx's in many respects. And there's a wonderful paper by Jan Toporowski on Kaletsky's theory of the rate of profit, which I refer to in my paper. But I would imagine Kaletsky would be probably more accurate. I haven't seen his calculations. He probably would include financial assets. I think it's just the Marxists who have the problem. So what we're asking is why the Marxists got the problem. And the short answer is one of the reasons Marxists have a problem is they don't, they don't read Marx. <laughs> and, and when they do read Marx, they read him with the intention of proving that he was wrong, because that's how you get a job teaching Marx these days. You can boil that down to something quite specific. Uh, first of all, they have uh, an interpretation of Marx which sees him as a kind of equilibrium theorist. There's an offshoot of that, or an aspect of that, which we call physicalism. And physicalism is very much the way that the um, post-Marx Marxists, the Sraffians, the so-called surplus school, thought that you could re reinterpret Marx. They thought you do away with value. You do away with the idea that price and profit come from the efforts of the labourer. You just look at the so-called use value, the utility, the physical product. And you can calculate, they said, the rate of profit just using physical quantities. So you don't need labor, you just use use value. Well, if you're gonna say that use value is the only thing that enters into the production of commodities, you've missed out something rather important, which is money. Money's not there. In fact, one of the well-known properties of equilibrium systems is this, this saying in, in technical economics, money is a veil. It's just a number, a so-called numeraire, that you use to measure something, but it's not a real thing. It's not something that you take to a shop and use to make purchases or keep in a bank. It, it's just absent from the analysis. So there's two things. Equilibrium means money is not present. And physicalism means that you think use values are responsible for everything. Well, if that's your mindset, when you think what is capital, you're going to think of things. You're going to think of objects, use values. You're going to think of the bricks and the mortar and the machinery and the wood and the, the, the rubber tires and anything else that goes into making things work. You're not going to think about the money, which is really a bit of a tragedy because Marx is one of the world's greatest ever financial and monetary analysis, analysts. And, and that whole aspect of its theory is just, just thrown out of the window. 
And I think that we're now catching up, we're now putting all the bits back together through a much more careful reading of Marx. And we're finding that actually, if you follow the money in Marx's own work, it is there in the rate of profit. It's there in the chapters that follow the ones where everybody else stops. It's there in the sort of chapters 15, 16 and 17 of Capital Volume 3. The one where the capital reading groups usually give up and go home. <laughs> That's what you've got to read. And people have just paid no attention to it because of this physicist bias and this equilibrium interpretation of Marx. What does the corrected rate of profit look like now in the UK? In the UK, it's not totally possible to say exactly what it's like because the measures of these financial assets don't go far back enough in time to create a continuous series from after the war. So all I can do is give an indication which simply shows when the traditional measure makes it look as if it's going to go up, in actual fact it's going down. But I, I couldn't put numbers on that. I can just say the trend uh, is continuous downwards. When you get to the US, you can say something much more definite because their statistics are much better. And you get what I call an exponential decline in the rate of profit. Now, exponential is usually used to describe something going up. It's when you get one of these curves. Now, if you could have the video, I could show you it. It starts off going up very slowly, and then it gets faster and faster, and it soars off into the stratosphere. But a downward exponential curve is like that in reverse. It falls initially fairly rapidly, and then it, it, it tails off, and it, it goes, in fact, towards what's called an asymptote. Now, I find that the rate of profit in the U.S. falls pretty accurately at a rate of about 1.4% per year from 1944 onwards. And, and that's basically what it's doing, and it's still doing today. What should we expect as the rate of profit dips to maybe towards the lower bound of this asymptote? Well, it never reaches. If it's on an exponential path, and, and, and Andrew and I have talked about this a lot, it gets to a point where it just sort of bumps along. We don't know if there's a lower limit. The, the lower limit is somewhere about the average, the, the demographic rate of change of the, of the economy. The economy has a natural rate of expansion, which is driven by demographics, which is driven by the labor force, of about 2%. So it, it doesn't go below that because there's enough money being created by those new labourers to, to increase the numerator in the rate of profit sufficient to catch up. And also, the closer it gets to zero, then the, uh, the more significant the effect of, a, of an increase in output. So you, you can get quite rapid recoveries sometimes, although not to previous levels. I would say that that bumping along the bottom is in fact the natural state of capitalism. And this is, this is a quite radical rethink. I haven't put that in this paper. I've put it in another one where I've, I've entitled that paper, What Causes Booms? 
the whole mindset of uh, most apologists of capitalism, most of the people who think capitalism is actually wonderful, is its normal state is one of these long boots after the war. Some people call them contrative expansions or long waves. I don't agree with that analysis. You get these rapid expansions and the tendency is for people to say, well, that's what capitalism normally does. Then you get these funny interruptions, these crises and these slumps and these depressions. Well, if you have a Kondratiev downturn, let's call it, a long decline, which dates back at least to 1974. And if the crisis, the first signs of that crisis really date back to 1965, you say, well, the expansion lasted about 25 years and the contraction has been going along for 45 years. I think that is in fact the normal state of capitalism. It's what capitalism does. It basically stagnates and then it has these geyser-like eruptions, the Industrial Revolution, the age of iron, steam and coal. Then you get this um, issue amongst the Marxists of what is called catastrophe theory, a breakdown theory. And that, that was a, a hugely important debate in the 1920s in Russia, where I've just come back from and they're still having it. There was this big debate about whether capitalism can restore itself. There was an issue as to how the revolution should conduct itself, which depended on whether you thought capitalism was going to recover from 1929 or not. If you thought it was going to recover, then you would basically want to be much more defensive. If you thought it wasn't being likely to recover, you'd, you'd, you'd try and extend your revolution much more aggressively. So it was a big, huge, real debate about the state of capitalism. But the, 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 the breakdown guys tended towards saying that breakdown is absolutely automatic. You can't do anything to stop it and capitalism will just grind to a halt. It's a bit millenarian. Well, if you look at what happened in history, it does get restored. There's absolutely no question about it. After prolonged periods of, of depression, such as the present one, up until now in history, it's gone back up again. That, I think, is historically specific. This is my argument. It's not an automatic trend. It's what I call the consequences of an exogenous intervention. An endogenous exogenous, that's another technical term, in the literature, endogenous means something that happens within the system. Capitalism does it on its own. Exogenous is when the government does something, or when classes do something, have a revolution or something like that. You go in and you basically fix it from the outside. Now, I think that the recoveries happen when capitalism is fixed from the outside, when things get so bad that it becomes politically unmanageable. Then you get all sorts of uh, extremely uh, dangerous effects. You get fascism, you get war. The last recovery, absolutely beyond doubt, occurred as a result of the Second World War. The first countries to recover were Germany and Japan. And the US did not recover through the New Deal. It recovered through the war. That's what led to its emerging as the great uh, high profit rate, supreme sort of fastest growing world world spanning power that it was after the war. So I would argue that when the thing gets to a certain point of political crisis, then something happens from the outside. That's, as I say, first of all, it's historically specific. You can't make any general rules. It may not happen this time. It's also an issue of choice. When the invisible hand shakes, the visible hand 
social action comes into play. In the class, there's the working class, the ruling class, the poor classes, the landed classes, the, the small, for everybody. Bankers, they all look at it and they say, oh shit, this isn't working. What are we going to do? And they take action. Well, the first thing the ruling tries, the ruling class tries, is cut wages. And that's what they've been doing for the last sort of seven years. Not altogether successfully, but they, the social wage, so they imply austerity and so on. That doesn't work. It just drives the system further into depression. The next stage is people are beginning to realize that the state has to do what's called investment-led stimuli. The state, the characteristics of a, a crisis is that the investors desert investment. The private investor just sticks money in bed socks and banks and so on, does not actually invest. And you're now starting to hear from quite senior banking circles People are saying there are these cash hoards, they're not being invested, the traditional market mechanism is not working, just realists, and sooner or later the state is going to have to step in with fiscal stimuli that replace the investor. Now, then the issue is on what scale you have to do that. And the answer is the bigger the scale, the faster the growth. I did a little paper called uh, How Much Is Enough? I wrote it in 2008. Well, the amount you're going to have to invest is something similar to what happened in the Second World War. You're going to have to spend 48% of GDP, 50% of GDP, not on investment, but on re-stimulating demand. This is nowhere near what's being spent now. The only countries that's spending that level are sort of China and increasingly some of the other BRICS countries, and that's why they're surging ahead. The difficulty for the state in a capitalist country is once you start putting a lot of money into the economy outside the market mechanism, you encourage the working class to start demanding what it gets spent on them. So people say, well, you know, how about reconstituting the health service? How about making Obamacare actually a bit more general? How about cutting into the pharmacological company's profits, seeing as they're the cause of the crisis? You just generally give the go-ahead to the sort of uh, stored up grievances of the people you've been crushing for the last 20 years who say, well now, you know, if, if it's all right to spend money from the state, we want some of it for us. That's the obstacle. It's a political obstacle. It's not, a, not an economic obstacle. And one of the reasons that that kind of expansion has only actually either happened in times of war or fascism is those are the only ways you can hold back the aspirations of working people once you start state spending. In a country such as China, you have another mechanism, which is development. So that development provides the incentive. But there, of course, you also see the working class, despite what everybody says, is very much on the offensive. It's very much pushing to now get its share of that expansion, pushing up living standards and so on. So, very long explanation, but what I'm saying is this is a political problem, not an economic problem, which means your listeners can do something about it. And what, what stage do you see the political system in currently? Meltdown, I think, would be a good description. I mean, we're not at sort of, um, we're not at 1939 stage yet, but there's some pretty, pretty bad things going on. I mean, if you look at Europe, it's absolutely crazy. 
First of all, there's a big shibboleth, which is the state being investor. Until at least some major economy gets out of that, you're not going to have any expansion in the, in the advanced economies. But then the natural mechanisms of competition between nations means that nations actually start to go down. The first nations that started to go down were, of course, those third world nations that were crashed by the IMF, like Argentina, Venezuela, and so on. Then you get rebellions in those countries that basically um, reimpose economic sovereignty, begin to put in capital controls. In the case of Venezuela, begin to use resources for social development. You, you, you get a contrary motion. This makes it even scarier for the advanced countries because they say, my God, you know, our people might imitate that. That's the last thing we want. But then the weaker countries like Greece or Eastern Europe, the pigs, you know, Portugal, Italy, Greece and Spain, they start to go down and you get these uh, hundreds of thousands. People take taken to the streets, you get riots. You get severe disturbances which don't yet threaten government and that scares them. But they can't do anything about it because, look, Everybody only goes around saying, well, you know, why should we pay for Greece? We're a successful economy. We're export driven. Why can't the Greeks emulate the great German example, work hard and export? It's completely dumb. Who are they exporting to? They're exporting to Greece. So immediately you drive the Greek, Italian, Portuguese and Spanish economy down the hill. Bang goes the demand for German exports. It's, it's just economic lunacy. They're beginning to realize that, but the problem they have is that they would need to introduce policies which would be severely damaging to private because they would, they would give working class people uh, a head and begin to say, we want a better share of that, we want that used socially instead of uh, for private gain, we want to reduce inequality, we want better social services. That's what they're scared of. What you then get, of course, is the growth of fascism. It's like all these, these characters pop up in history, like they, they were just waiting to come out of the books. And along you get Greek fascism now, which is growing very alarmingly. The sort of things that are happening in, in Hungary have been scary for 10 to 15 years. Uh, God knows what's going on in America. At present, there is not the kind of severe austerity that has been seen in Europe. But if they start to do that, then how many million people running around with high-powered assault weapons. You're going to get some pretty scary things happening. And that's why you have to mobilize to prevent that, instead of sitting back like a, a rabbit in the headlamps. I hope that's not too apocalyptic. The basic message is there's a crisis. In a crisis, you have a choice and you have to act. And, and the opportunity to act is there, as Hugo Chavez so courageously demonstrated, that you have to act or worse things happen. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Freeman. Thanks to you, and good luck. this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, Saul Williams with his list of demands, and the Colbert Report, accompanied by the Benny Hill theme tune. 
also heard The Hotels with Ignore Me. And you are now, with the help of Abdullah Ibrahim, being transported to an African marketplace. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>